I-94 on Lumpen Radio. We're here at Pilsen Community Books. Please, if you would, give a warm welcome to the author, Joe Allen. Thank you. Thank you. As always, this is a live edition of I-94. And as um, you know me, I'm Jamie Trecker. I'm on this show all the time. I'm joined by Jeremy Kitchen. Hello. Good evening. And, of course, Mr. Michael Sack. Hello. And I want to introduce our author here. He is the author of a number of books, but the two we're going to be concentrating on tonight, both from Haymarket Press. Um, there's no cover on this because I took it off because I'm a slob. Uh, <laughs> People Wasn't Made to Burn. And this one, Vietnam, the parentheses, Last War, the USA Lost. Joe, tell us a little bit, first of all, you, you obviously mostly work in nonfiction. Was that a conscious choice you made, or did you have dreams like every failed sports writer of writing the great American novel? <laughs> Well, I, I never really thought of myself as like a fiction writer. I, I, I love fiction. I read it. I think the American canon of fiction is great. It's, it's impacted the world. Um, but that's not me, uh, and I, I don't want to pretend to be that. Uh, I started writing uh, because I was a political activist, and I you know, started out like most young activists as I would write reports about things, and then I moved into more writing analytical pieces and you know, 20 years later, um, uh, that meant ended up my first book was about uh, about Vietnam, which was really a product out of uh, writing three articles for the International Socialist Review. And and I approached Haymarket and said, you know, is this worth putting into a book? And that was, you know, sort of halfway through the disastrous Iraq war when a lot of analogies were being made to Vietnam, most of which were uh, not only just wrong, but uh, there was a whole generation of people who had grown up after the Vietnam War who, you know, knew very little about it. Um, what they knew was primarily from Hollywood, and what they most of the time what they held with absolute certainty about the war or the anti-war movement, I found in most cases to be completely wrong. And so, I thought, you know, as somebody who grew up in the and became political in those uh, the post-Vietnam years that. Maybe one contribution I could make was to was to sort of take some of my articles and then put it into a full fledged book for that that newer generation of anti war activists, and that's where the first book came from, really. I want to back up just a little bit because there's a lot to unpack there. I, I do want to get why the comparisons between Iraq and Vietnam are wrong, but mm-hmm. can you take us back and tell us why you became an activist in the first place, and what was your kind of background? Did you have any kind of family background of this? Most of the stuff that you, you've written obviously does come, it seems, from that kind of Union Corps, mm-hmm. uh, Chicago working man, but also very politically active kind of mentality. Well, it's always hard to remember your own life in some strange way because I think you you develop a certain idea of uh, you start in one place and where you get to say today is you there's a tendency to make that a certain straight line and then when you think about it a bit more carefully it's a bit more uh, of a zigzag than that. I I grew up outside of Boston. Uh, you know, I was born in 1960, so if you do the quick math, that means I'm 37. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a joke. Everyone you can laugh. Mm-hmm. They won the, the World yeah. Series, uh, I think, uh, back then, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. That's right. And uh, I grew up in the 1970s where the issues of, you know, the Vietnam War, which impacted my family directly. My uncle served two tours of duty in Vietnam. He was a combat Marine. Um, issues of post-traumatic stress disorder were huge issues. Agent Orange was a huge issue for returning vets. My cousins uh, were active in the anti-war movement, but they were active particularly at UMass Boston, which was uh, the the working-class university 
in, in, in the city of Boston, um, and where the anti-war movement had a very sort of different character. It was made up of vets and working class kids and kids who had grown up in neighborhoods like Dorchester and South Boston, which you know, uh, were not seen as, you know, for many years as progressive or anti-war. In fact, they were probably seen as the opposite. Um, you know, I grew up in a, uh, outside of Boston, my hometown of Stoughton, which was deeply impacted by the Vietnam War. And, and issues of integrated housing and uh, issues of, uh, you know, unionism and, and poverty were huge issues, both in my family and where I grew up. And in some way, all of this I think was probably the spark for thinking about politics at a very young age, you know. And uh, I can still remember coming home in like eighth grade and watching the Watergate hearings and having a sense that something was, was, was deeply, deeply wrong. But, you know, but, you know this, is only the, this is the beginning of what, you know, propels you towards sort of some politics. I think that's where it sort of all starts, you know, for me. Thanks for sharing that. I, I grew up outside of Detroit. My grandfather was actually started the first union newspaper in Detroit. Okay. Um, you know, he used to leave the house with a billy club, you know, sewn into his pocket. Uh, we get bricks. My grand, not me, but my mother, when she was a child, bricks would come flying through their window because they were union. You know, they were organizing, and the, you know, the big three used to hire mm -hmm. goons, and they'd send them in to uh, disrupt labor meetings and things like that. And that's also um, where I got my politics from. Was from my grandfather, and he was. He was very, um, very powerful in the labor movement, and um, particularly with the United Auto Workers. And uh, I grew up in a, it would, at the time was a like a factory town right mm -hmm. outside of Detroit. It's not anymore. It's as white collar as it gets. But um, um, it's interesting because one of the things we don't talk about a lot, um, and I, I noticed it was thematic through both your books, is you know, you know, if if we have strong unions, strong labor rights, um, you know, less people live in poverty, less mm -hmm. people live in poverty, less problems. And, you know, the right wing has demonized, you know, the labor movement, you know, way prior to Reagan, but they really hammered us with Reagan. Um, I'm still a union member. I'm also a combat vet. Uh, I was in the Middle East and, you know, all these things affect me a great deal. Um, and it, uh, you know, I was telling one of my coworkers about, you know, people were getting fragged in Vietnam. And for those of you who aren't familiar with it, it's a lot of times officers will come out of ROTC and, and they would get people in dangerous situations. So you'd pop a fragmentation grenade, throw it under their bed, blow it up, boom, officer dead, problem over. And I went, I served with guys that were in Vietnam. I was in Desert Storm and, uh, you know, I had a guy that was, he did three tours as a tunnel rat that was my platoon sergeant. And he was telling me how, you know, that things like that used to happen, and it's like we have this such a, you know, we talk about the military-industrial complex, but I call it the military rah-rah complex now. You know, you, you go to a, any sporting event, and there's like an 800-foot flag, and they're out there, you know, and it's just, and, um, you know, I'm a vet, like I said, and I, I but, like, if I, if I knew everything I knew now, I would have never joined the military. You know, it was just, I was a dumb kid. I didn't have anywhere to go. But, um, you know, I think all these things are prevalent. You know, the military is a place where dumb kids like myself that didn't have any money and weren't able to go to college went, you know, and it's like we have all these things set up in place, particularly the military and prison, for people that, you know, can't get through life um, in the way that, you know, society, the uh, quote-unquote normal society deems. And, uh, you know, I think a strong labor movement would change that a lot. Sorry, I just that, said a lot. but No, that's a good tie-in. Um in the in the latter half of the Vietnam book, Joe talked about um, 
that movement that happened in Detroit, I forget the name of it, uh, where Vietnam vets who had committed war crimes mm-hmm. held... Winter Soldier his or hearings. What, what was it? It was called the Winter, the Winter Soldier Winter hearings. Soldier hearings, yes. Right, Which most right. of you might know from Captain America. It's not what it is. <laughs> yeah. Right over my head. <laughs> you, don't um, watch, you don't watch movies? No, apparently not. <laughs> um, I'm out of here. I think it was 100 combat, combat vets Something. from Vietnam yeah. held a, a hearing or a press conference. It was a, several days of hearings. To talk it. about their, their own mm-hmm. crimes that they committed. Yes. And... Um, you go on to say in the book, um, well, to discuss whether or not <clears throat> those type of actions or the youth organizing or, or public protests were effective in, in stopping mm-hmm. the war or, or affecting the, the timing of the withdrawal. And, um, you know, that debate still goes on today. It's not, it's not conclusive. But what I was wondering is, from what you saw when growing up, being involved with with uh, political organizing, and you're still involved, right? Oh, absolutely, sure. Yeah, and and what you see in the youth today. I remember growing up, you know, my uncle was involved in Vietnam protests. He, he would always complain about how, you know, we were we didn't know what the heck was going on mm-hmm. in politics, and we didn't care. We didn't organize. We just listened to music and played video games. Mm-hmm. Do you do you think that's accurate? Do you see less youth involved today? Than you did when you were coming up, and do you do you have an opinion about the efficacy of of public protest then and now? Well, I think I think public protests, particularly the huge demonstrations against the Vietnam War, had a very important impact on moving public opinion uh, against the war, um, and that was intimately tied up with both the resistance of the Vietnamese, both North and South. Vietnam. There's only one Vietnam. You know, it's two Vietnams were the creation of the United States. I mean, there's only one Vietnam. Um, yeah, if you, if you want to read a, a further or more comprehensive history of the Vietnam War in Joe's book, you can you can read about the history of U.S. involvement beginning in the just after World War II. Right. I mean, like I always, when I ever speak on Vietnam, particularly between, for younger audiences, I, I ask people, I think, when do you think the first demonstrations against the Vietnam War took place in the United States? And inevitably, everybody says like 66 or 68, when in fact it was 1945. And people are a little shocked by that because uh, there's a sense that even when you watch uh, uh mainstream news histories of the war many of uh of the documentaries uh, that have been made about vietnam with the exception of i think um you know peter davis's really important film hearts and minds which was made back in the early 1970s is that the vietnamese had a very long history of fighting against foreign domination it was chinese and then the french and then the japanese and then the french again and then the americans and that resistance combined with Uh, an ever-growing radicalization in the United States during the 1960s, particularly from the Black Freedom Movement, um, you know, drove millions of people to oppose uh, the war in a way that Americans hadn't opposed a war uh, for progressive reasons uh, uh, since World War I. There was a lot of opposition to uh, America getting involved in World War II, but that was really for quite reactionary, backward reasons. That's a whole. That's a whole different story. I think there's also a lot of the thing about the American society 
and and culture is that it's it's very good at rewriting history very very quickly, so that even when the war ends formally for the United States in 1973, the Amer- the pro-American government in Saigon collapses uh, in 1975. And then really after that, there's a series of films, particularly throughout the 1980s, not all of which are terrible, but all of which take primarily the standpoint uh, that the United States was the greatest victim of the war uh, and that this this was a self-inflicted wound and the ultimate people who paid the price for that were American, American veterans. And probably the best example of that uh, film, uh, of that type of film, was The Deer Hunter, uh, which in many ways is a very compelling uh, film, uh, extremely well made and extremely reactionary. And it sort of set the tone for many films uh, that came afterwards. I think, I think a lot of youth today, if you want to say that people under 35, have grown up in very different circumstances. They've grown up in a, 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 a year, an era of growing economic inequality, uh, a series of failed and dubious wars in the Middle East. I think that's why socialism, in a very vague sense, is now popular amongst a large number of young people in a way that uh, is really quite unprecedented uh, in, uh, in the modern history of the United States. So I think more, more people, more younger people are ra- more radical now than ever before, more aware of the political issues, which is why I think the next war that the United States launches, which is inevitable because it's always at war in some way or another, will have an even greater opposition than Bush's wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. That's really interesting, and I'd like to actually get back to something you brought up earlier. You mentioned that during uh, the Iraq War, of course, which, which Jeremy served in, that um, people made false comparisons to Vietnam. Could mm-hmm. you go a little deeper on that? And maybe Jeremy could, could chip in, obviously, because you obviously saw combat. Yeah. Well, I was in Desert Storm. I wasn't in the— I'm sorry, Desert Storm, yeah. I was in Desert Storm Part 1. Oh, part 2 came, co- came much later. Electric Boogaloo? <laughs> yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. Sorry. Well, no, I th- it's fine. I think it's a, just a couple of things. I mean, when Richard Nixon can write a book called No More Vietnams, uh, is you know, I mean— you know, Nixon, Nixon, who was, you know, legendary for not only his domestic crimes against the American people, which were most understood as Watergate, but far more far reaching than that, um, who, you know, help, whose, whose people sabotaged the possibility of a peace deal in 1968, leading to the deaths of over 20,000 more American soldiers and, and, and uncounted numbers of Vietnamese, Cambodians and Laotians, that when he could write a book called No More Vietnams, then obviously the sense of what did the Vietnam War actually mean has become fairly vague in people's people's minds. And what I mean by false comparisons is that, well, first of all, you know, the one thing they do have in common is that the United States is the world's greatest empire. It's still the most, you know, interventionist force uh, in the world. It seeks to shape uh, the world for, for, for its needs, irrespective of what the needs of the people are in those regions, though it always cloaks its 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 uh, its aims in democracy and freedom and self determination and and seems to always do the opposite than that and that's one of the reasons why from Vietnam to the present it's the it's really kind of the contradiction between what is said and what is done that has always produced this mass opposition to these wars and particularly inside the military because you know even when uninformed kids join because they feel like they have no direction in their life or they join because they think that there's some college tuition money or even kids who join because they're patriotic and as one said to me who came back from the Iraq war said I didn't join because I was poor I came from a pretty well-off family I just like to blow shit up that when they got there they realized that you know it was something completely different 
yeah. uh, from what the, from what they thought. And I think that you know the false issues of Vietnam are always about the idea that you know the American government fought fought the war with one hand behind its back, which the Vietnamese would find surprising, since the United States dropped you know four times as many bombs on Southeast Asia as were dropped in all of World War II. That's not a typo. Um, You know, that the United States waged a war to destroy the agricultural basis of Vietnamese society, displaced tens of thousands, destroyed the vegetation of the countryside through various herbicides. The most famous and evil was called Agent, uh, Agent Orange. You couldn't even think of a better spy Name for something like that, you know, uh, the original death or something. Like right. Well, that. yeah. The the original name for the project of defoliating the forests of Vietnam was called Operation Hades, which is actually quite correct. And so they they changed it to Ranch Hand because <laughs> well, what the hell does that mean? I mean, you know, I mean, it doesn't mean anything, right? But it's not Hades, which implies you know hell. Um, and of course, that's one of the things that later, when vet, American vets came back that uh, had the biggest popular reaction to how they were treated by the Veterans Associate uh, Administration, a reoccurring issue for soldiers coming back, which is the Veterans Administration always attempts to screw over another generation of veterans who claim mental health or physical disabilities as a result of combat served in that particular war. It should be called not the Veterans Administration. I mean, that would be more, far more accurate. In what it in what it does, well, they've just. I mean, the what the VA does for PTSD is, they I, I forgot exactly what it's called, but it's where they recur the trauma over and over right, again, right. and it's been proven over and over again to be completely ineffective and actually re-traumatize the soldiers. Right. And there's been all these studies about it, yet they continue to do it because they're. I, and I just did want to mention too when when Joe was talking. When my experience when I was in the military, I didn't hang out with one guy that went in for patriotic reasons it was all financial i was a screw-up or i was from the hood or i was from a rural area that was it Mm -hmm. you know and there was like you know there was maybe a couple guys that were like Mm -hmm. go usa but you know and i i always like to say that and the reason i do is because most guys don't go into the military because like they're on a good run and women sorry most people don't go in the military because they're on a good run because you know a lot of times um those on the left, including myself, you know, they tend to persecute the soldiers, but some people don't know that that's, the, you know, that there's more to, that you can do besides that. So, I think there's the other thing, the biggest misconception from the Vietnam era that hung over into the, the, the current time is the idea that the anti-war movement was hostile to soldiers, you know, that soldiers were spit upon when they returned to the United States that, you know, and I think that one, I, I think that one is a complete myth because nobody talked about that at the time. And it was really something that was created around the time of the first Gulf War um, uh, by the Bush administration uh, and, and taken up as almost an act of mass hysteria. People would recount these stories. Jerry Lemke, who was a, a Vietnam veteran and a sociologist, I think he's retired now. He taught it you know, Clark University in, in Massachusetts, he wrote a whole book called The Spitting Image, and he just took the whole mythology of it apart because one of the things he points out, and having been a Vietnam vet, is that from the very beginning of the Vietnam conflict and the beginning of an anti-war movement in 1965 is that veterans played prominent roles in it. The most famous was a man named Donald Duncan in 1965 who was a Green Beret in Vietnam and was, you know, was going to be a major figure in the Pentagon 
and he famously quit and issued a, a statement saying, I quit. And, and then he explained. gave back his medals. Right? And he gave back everything. Yeah. And then he was one of the major figures behind uh, the Winter Soldier investigations. He was all, and played a prominent role uh, throughout that era. By, the, uh, by 1967, there's a, a very small group called Vietnam Veterans Against the War, which then balloons really post-68 uh, into being a major force and take, essentially takes over the leadership of the anti-war movement in the early 19 in the early 1970s. VVAW still exists to this to this very to this very very day and plays a very important role in mentoring returning soldiers from from the, the various wars in the Middle East. So I think that you know one of the things about when you when we talk about uh, the sort of culture of discussing this stuff and, and all this makes its way into films or did at one time you know in the 1980s you know. People always say that there was Hollywood didn't deal with Vietnam in the 60s and 70s. That's mostly true. They did put out a terrible movie in 1968 called The Green Berets with John Wayne. Remember uh, the Spartans, wasn't that? That was later. That okay. was that was a little bit later. That's actually a great movie. That's a good movie. That's a good movie with Burt Lancaster. Uh, but you know, they put out this horrible John Wayne film, which you can I mean you can imagine it was just it was just terrible. And I remember my grandmother taking me to it at the Westgate Mall in Brockton when I was eight years old, and I was just sort of bewildered by my my, my grandmother wanted me to go to something like this. <laughs> uh, but it was such a flop that they really didn't make any movies for many years afterwards. In the course of the 1980s, you, they didn't stop making films uh, on, on Vietnam, and, and they are of uneven quality at best. I mean, I, I appreciate a lot of the stuff that uh, Oliver Stone made and other films like that, but, you know... Ultimately, if you want to learn about the Vietnam War, it's always worth reading what the Vietnamese have to say about it, because after all, it was the Vietnam War. It was their war, and they call it the American War. There's a new book um, that I've reviewed for the library catalog called Hugh 68. It was written by the same guy that wrote Black Hawk Down, and he takes perspectives from Vietnamese soldiers. And one of the interesting things that I learned in that book is none of those guys were fighting for communism. They were fighting for the independence of Vietnam. And, you know, we've we like to portray these wars as like, you know, it's a war on terror. It's a war on, you know, they don't say Muslims, but it is. Um, it's a war, you know, it's a war against communism. But most of those guys were just fighting because they were sick of their country being taken over by, mm -hmm. you know, various forces, the West and, and China. That's a great point. Actually, I, that brings up something I wanted to get to before we have to go to a quick break. In your book, you lay out the various excuses uh, that American presidents and war makers made for going to Vietnam. And they're, they're kind of interesting. They felt, uh, in your telling, that if they didn't do this, they would have no credibility. Mm -hmm. And there was a credibility gap in right. all this. Right. Can you talk a little about this? Because it seems, uh, when I read that, I, I felt very strong echoes of some of the things that I see from um, a certain politician whose name I will not utter <laughs> today. Well, it even makes it into the uh, the current film, The Post, Steven Spielberg's uh, new film about the uh, Washington Post and the Pentagon Papers, which I would encourage people to go see. I think it's a good film. You know, in a Robert McNamara was a was a very complex and 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 tortured figure. He was Secretary of Defense. In fact, he was the longest serving Def Secretary of Defense in American history, and he launched the war. He was the architect of it. And by the time his tenure came to an end, he had quietly turned against the war, though he was never going to speak about that publicly. Uh, he's the one who actually commissioned what we now call the Pentagon Papers, which was at the time a history, you know, the official title is this long, boring title, the history of decision making as it pertains to Vietnam. Right. Um, um, uh, one, in 1966, he brought in one of his uh, advisors, a man named John McNaughton, who was actually from Illinois. And he said, and I just thought this was interesting about how Washington 
operates. He said, well, can you summarize for me why we're fighting this war? Now, this is the Secretary of Defense asking an assistant, clarify this for me. And he came back like a day later with a, with a memo, and it said, well, 70% of the reason, 70% oh, of the reason yeah. is because we don't want to be humiliated by uh, a, a prominent defeat on the battlefield. Okay, well, that's, that's interesting. We should, nobody told that to the parents who were giving their children to the, to, to the military. 20% of that, of it, the reason was that we wanted to make sure that a pro-Chinese government didn't come to power, which was also interesting because Hanoi was more pro-Moscow than pro-China. Pro that was a legacy partly of always seeing China as its primary oppressor. And the big 10%, was for freedom and democracy. So, uh, you know, it, when you have 10 bombs falling on you from American airplanes, just remember, seven of them are for the, to stop the humiliation of the United States uh, government. And I think the, the root cause of that, and this was, you know, true of other great empires of the past, the British or the French, or uh, the British in particular, is that once you're the top dog in the world, you can never be seen as losing or being challenged. And so you end up fighting what appear to be these kind of far-flung and obscure wars because any sense of defeat can lead to defeat in, in, in other places. And I think that that was at the root of McNaughton's uh, clarification for Robert McNamara. There's actually, this all, that scene is actually played out a little bit in a more fictionalized way in the post as well. It's actually very well done. People should see it. Right, we're going to take a break, and then when we come back, we're going to get to People Wasn't Made to Burn. Yeah, he's Crypt. written another book, too. It's not just this one book. We're not going to spend it on. Give it up for Joe Allen. We'll be right back. Thank you. All right, guys, welcome back. We are I-94. We're live at Pilsen Community Books, and, of course, we are joined by Haymarket author Joe Allen. Joe, we just spent the first half hour talking about your book, Vietnam, The Last War That the United States Lost. As I joked, you have written another book. You've actually written several other books, as it, as it happens. But we'd like to talk about this book, which is very Chicago-centric. It's called People Wasn't Made to Burn, and it involves the deaths of four children and then a murder. We could argue, I guess, that there's five murders in, mm -hmm. in this book. Um, in a fire in 1947 in, in Chicago. Um, this book had particular resonance for me because on a personal note, I had a house fire uh, about a year and a half ago. Uh, my wife and I lost everything. Uh, no one was injured, however. Mm -hmm. But one of the things that resonated through this book was the fact that there was a tremendous amount of arson and burnings that were happening, particularly in African-American neighborhoods in mm -hmm. the city mm -hmm. in the 1940s. Can you give people who probably don't know much about this era, as, as I did before I opened this book, a little kind of pocket history of what was going on in Chicago at the time and why these things were happening? Well, I think, uh, you, you know, when you go into Chicago history is that, you know, Chicago is, a, a, you know, not, not only a major industrial city, you know, a city that's known around the world, was very important to the formation of the labor movement, but obviously it's a city that was uh, where many African Americans over a generation and a half came to to escape the worst of living in the Jim Crow South. And um, beginning around World War I, uh, when Europe European immigration was cut off by uh, the First World War, is that African Americans began coming north. Uh, to the great industrial centers and, and to the West, too, but particularly to the Midwest and particularly to places like Chicago. Um, you know, the Hickman family came here during World War II. Uh, um, they, like many 
African-American families, particularly from Mississippi. There's a lot of African-Americans in Chicago who, whose family roots are in, are in Mississippi, because you just take the train north, I and mean, that's pretty, pretty simple. Um, uh, worked as sharecroppers, which is a, you know, uh, a game you can't win. Uh, it's always uh, the big landowners make out, you don't. They came here and became industrial workers. But like with immigrants all around the world, is that while people will welcome you here for your labor, Finding a decent place to live is another story. And for African Americans, that was particularly particularly difficult. And so uh, up until 1947, 48, when the Supreme Court outlawed it, it was perfectly legal to engage in housing discrimination. You could write into deeds or uh, rental agreements, no blacks, no Mexicans, no whatever to live here, so forth, right? Uh, and that was perfectly legal. Uh, in a place like Chicago, uh, we think of the South Side being a, a huge area of the city, where, which is essentially an African-American area. It was much more narrowly focused in those days. It was called the Black Belt. And it was sealed in by these, these really kind of paper agreements uh, that were called racial covenants. And uh, when African-Americans tried to live outside the Black Belt, uh, in most cases, they, f they faced vigilant, racist vigilante violence, having their homes burned, and so forth. And so what you had uh, for African Americans of, of that era was, you know, a combination of two of the worst possible worlds in Chicago. One was, you know, you had this housing segregation, right? You can only live here, for example, um, which leads to an enormous amount of economic exploitation. Because if you don't have options then you just get preyed upon by, by landowners, right? And the Hickman family was one of the, uh, the first generation of people, of African Americans, to live on what we now call uh, the West Side, or what probably would have been called Greater Little Italy then. Near West, maybe. Near West. I mean, uh, the real estate companies determine how you, you know, in New York, Hell's Kitchen is now called Clinton, even though everybody calls it Hell's Kitchen. I right? remember the 90s, they used to call Humboldt Park West Bucktown. Right, right. So, you know, uh, and I think so that's kind of the big and in, in, in the little of it. And I think the, uh, you know, when you're preyed upon like that by landlords who are overwhelmingly white, but in the case of the Hickman family, who was, who was all, David Coleman, was black and from Mississippi, um, that it, it, it meant that you were not only at their prey economically, but if they decided to take revenge on you, you were almost trapped in these terrible, terrible working conditions. If you read uh, Native Son by Richard Wright, you know, the classic book about black Chicago in the 20s and 30s, is that he begins it with a description of this, what they call kitchenette housing, which is this kind of cute sounding term. It sounds like something like a young couple has when they they move into a trendy part of town, right? You, oh, we got a kitchenette, doesn't it? It sounds nice. But in fact, what it really meant was a one-room hovel, um, which was most likely not heated or heated only by a rickety stove. Uh, the electrical wiring was terrible, cramped, and of course, very vulnerable to not only if there was a fire, that you couldn't escape from it. And so in the, the winter of 46 and 47, which up until very recently was like the coldest consistent weather in the, the northern hemisphere. I mean, not just the United States, all through Europe, these are big, leads to big political issues in other parts of the, the world, is that that's when a fire crisis really is, is, is beginning to literally burn its way through 
um, Black Chicago, and that's kind of the there was big something budget. like 750 fires in. A, in it's an enormous in amount. Area. I mean, and the reason we know that is because the Chicago Defender, which was you know this very heroic, well-known uh, uh, campaigning newspaper, which is much diminished in size and influence. There's a new book that came out like two years ago about the history of the Defender. Do they run a print version anymore? There's still a print oh, yeah. version. Yeah. There's still, the still a print version. But, uh, you know, in terms of being a nationally and locally important political p- newspaper, it's, it's just not, it's not that way anymore. Like, you know, like, unfortunately, most of the black press in this country, it's become very diminished in, uh, well, in its impact. The Pullman porters actually used to take the Defender on trains running south, mm-hmm. and they throw, mm-hmm. they throw uh, piles of them out so people could read them in, in the south. And one of the other things I want to mention about the Defender, too, is at the time— uh, one of the writers who wrote is Bud Billiken. Um, as we all know, there's the Bud Billiken Parade here mm-hmm. in Chicago, um, which was a parade for um, African Americans because they weren't generally included in parades. So they had their own parade, but was the the uh, writer that wrote under the Bud Billiken moniker. His name was Willard Motley. Mm-hmm. Um, Willard Motley's a phenomenal author. He wrote a book called Knocking Any Door, which was about a thug, albeit uh, a Greek, a white kid, which actually led him to some problems during the civil rights movement, and he was—he um, felt alienated, and, and the IRS was after him, and he ended up uh, becoming an expatriate in Mexico. But he's one of those writers, uh, uh, kind of a lost Chicago writer. They actually made a movie about it, uh, starring Humphrey Bogart. It's kind of corny, but it's—it's it's pretty awesome. It's—you it, get to see a lot of old Chicago, and I think it was the first time they used live fast, die young, and have a good-looking corpse because that kid says it like a hundred times. He's just you know, <laughs> like, why did he? He's like, I just want to live fast, die young, and have a good-looking corpse. <laughs> but uh, joking aside, the movie's kind of hokey, but the book is phenomenal, and I just want to throw in Motley's name because he's kind of left out. Um, his uncle was Archibald Motley, um, who's a musician and artist in his own right, um, but I, I, I wanted to plug him. I'm more of a fiction guy than a nonfiction guy. And, uh, yeah, I'll, same. I, I love that about um, People Wasn't Made to Burn is is, is Motley kind of has a cameo mm-hmm. in there. He was part of the Hickman defense team, which we should get to why there was Hickman, Hickman defense, defense team. That's correct. So, Joe, take us through, first of all, I mean, this you note in the beginning of this book that it was a difficult one to write. Most of the source material uh, wasn't around. The people who would have witnessed it were, were dead. Uh, but you were moved to write this book. Uh, the book, as we mentioned at the very start, involves, um, I think we should properly call it the murder of four young children in an apartment fire um, that turns out to have been set by the landlord. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, there's a number of incidences like this where landlords were trying to get insurance money by burning buildings down. Uh, and the main character in the book, uh, Mr. Hickman, goes and kills the landlord, kills David Coleman. Uh, with four shots, Coleman hangs on in a hospital for a little while, ultimately dies from a shot to the, the neck. He, uh, he's tried in, in Cook County here in Chicago. Um, I don't want to give away any spoilers, but it's not the ending that you would expect, but he's tried for first-degree murder. Mm-hmm. Um, take us through a little bit, though, of why this particular case, and it did, it had nationwide resonance at the time. What happened to make this particular case speak to so many people at this point? Well, I think that the, the, the story is very dramatic because, you know, what was happening to James Hickman because, you know, his family was threatened by this uh, uh, landlord or a guy who worked for the landlord, a man named David Coleman. He's, he, you know, one of the scams of, of housing at the time was 
because housing was so limited and blacks were forced to, you know, into very restricted areas, lack of mobility and options for housing, that uh, they would period, landlords would periodically show up and say, well, we want you to move out because we're going to make your apartments into even smaller ones. And they would just charge more money for people coming in. Because Chicago always drew large numbers of either you know, immigrants within the United States or from out the United States. So there was plenty of people to rent to and make money off of them. And the tenants in Hickman's building, which was just you know, right in back of the jewel over in Roosevelt and uh, in Ashland over there. It's no, the building's no longer there, but that's where it was located. Um, had fought him off several times for doing this. And what Coleman would do is he would show up at odd hours and he would tell people, well, you either move out or I'll burn you out. And of course, this is a building that was full of children. And one night when Hickman went to work in January 1947, uh, there was a fire. And ultimately, his four youngest children uh, died from asphyxiation. And they did what kids do, or old people, particularly what kids do in fires from then to now do, which is once the smoke starts up, the kids usually cram together and they try to hide. They either go under a bed or they go into a closet, and that's where the firefighters find them. Uh, Hickman was called at work and told uh, there was a problem at home. He wasn't told what it was, and he left Wisconsin Steel, which used to be located on the very far side of south side of Chicago, very very far south. So taking the trolleys and the buses, it took him forever to get back here. And when he got home, he found out that essentially his four youngest kids were killed. His wife was severely injured. She crawled out the window and then essentially fell from three stories up. Another son had survived the fire, uh, and uh, during the next couple of weeks, there was this sort of attempt to find David Coleman, who eluded the police for several weeks until, until he was arrested. And despite Coleman's and well-documented statements by all the residents that Coleman had threatened uh, the residents with being burned out, he was not indicted by uh, or seriously investigated by the police department or the Cook County State's Attorney's Office. Six months following that, not to ruin it for people. He shoots and mortally wounds Coleman six months later. Um, and a campaign is organized to defend, to defend him. Despite the best efforts of the Cook County uh, State's Attorney's Office... They, the, wanted to, they, wanted to give him, they wanted to give him the death penalty. Initially, and then they yeah. dropped it because they realized it was unpopular. And that was the first sign of, of the very obvious fact that, you know, Everybody knows that everybody knew that Coleman's kids were died in the fire, and you couldn't portray him as some monster who was just out of out of control. Um, there were four coroner's hearings, something very different from what people know today about how investigations are conducted. All very well publicized in the daily newspapers of Chicago. And remember, there was many daily newspapers and many editions of daily newspapers in those at, days. At those hearings, they were juries. From the public, right? Right. And they were drawn from the public. And while they didn't specifically indict Coleman, the, uh, the, 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 the coroner for Cook County, a man named A.R. Brody, said, strongly encouraged the police to further investigate the right. case. And he did, they didn't. Um, and why didn't they? That's never been entirely clear, because the police don't have to explain their actions, right? Uh, they, it could have been just simple negligence. They just didn't give whatever, about uh, African-American life in the city of Chicago at the time, which wouldn't surprise most people then or, or now, or the lives of, of immigrants who die in a fire. They just don't 
put much emphasis into these things. Uh, and, you know, the, the members of the Socialist Workers' Party, which is a very small socialist group, took the lead in organizing a defense campaign. And the two people that they got involved, which may be, you know, surprising to people, was, uh, you know, Willard Motley, who, you know, was one of the last great writers of the Chicago Renaissance in the 1930s and 40s. Uh, he was an interesting guy because he was, a, he was a black writer who wrote about white people, uh, which was not very common, mostly around Maxwell Street. He was also gay, but wrote fairly disparaging portrayals of gay people in his novels, which tells you something about that era of being a gay writer and what you thought you could write about and what not to write about. Um, he, he also saw himself having a political consciousness. And I once asked uh, Frank Freed, who was you know one of the surviving members of the Hickman Defense Committee, I said, well, how did you get in touch with Motley? Because you know, we always think of you know, how do you get, get an agent and then there's barriers. And he said, well, I think uh, Mike Bartel, who was the chief organizer for the Socialist Workers Party here, I just think Mike looked him up in the phone book and called him. <laughs> well, that's too simple, isn't it? And he wrote this public statement, which was re reprinted in 80 newspapers around the country, mostly African-American newspapers. That was the defense of, of, of Hickman's case. The other person that they got involved was a real Hollywood star, which was Tulula Bankhead, who, you know, uh, made a reputation for being this kind of, you know, outrageous sort of personality. Uh, but she was a very good actress. She was in Hitchcock's, life, Hitchcock's Lifeboat and also was well-known as a st as stage actress. Is she who, pe who people are imitating when they say darling? Darling, yes. Darling. That's apparently what she used to say all the time. And she spoke publicly for, for Hickman at, at the biggest rally for him at a black church. And, and she also signed public statements in support of him, uh, which goes to show you that even glamorous, outrageous stars can play a very important role in giving publicity to a case that otherwise... They may not have gotten. I mean, the civil rights movement used that tactic too. Absolutely. Harry Belafonte. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, absolutely. And I think that, uh, you know, it's 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 a unique case because the Hickman case, in many ways, takes place at a point in time in American history. Because in, in 1946, 47, 48, there's a burgeoning anti-communist hysteria in the United States, and in many ways, 1947 is the turning point for that getting much worse. You know, we call that McCarthyism later, but that's kind of a misnomer in many ways because it really the way is the witch hunt starts with, with Truman. Joe, uh, do, you, do you think there's a reason? I mean, is there? Well, do we have an explanation why this you know anti-communism fear started in America? Because you know, even now, like when you say socialist, the S word, you know. Mm -hmm particularly in the last election. They're like, oh, no one that's a socialist is going to get elected, things like that. You hear it in the popular media. What what brought, you know, I know why there's anti-unionism because people want mm -hmm. people to work for nothing. But, like, what what was the reason that there was so much anti-communism at the end of the 40s? Do you know? Or? Well, I would say I think most historians would agree is that, you know, you have a wartime alliance between uh, the United States, Russia, and, and Britain, and with a few other countries, but they're the big three. And during those years, the strong anti-communism that did exist in American society was kind of dissipated because the Russians were really fighting the bulk of the war against the Germans. I mean, you know. Um, but after the war, there's a contest for who would be the dominant power in the world. And um, anti-communism at that time really kind of flows from that. And, you know, socialism becomes completely identified with, with communism in the sense of being a kind of new form of totalitarianism. And that really, in some sense, that image of that lasted a very long time in the United States. And of course, 
you know, Stalin's Russia wasn't uh, something that could contradict that. In fact, it kind of confirmed that for a lot of, a lot of people. Um, you know, and 1947 becomes this kind of particularly big turning point for this because, you know, within a year or two, there becomes very prominent political trials of the Communist Party for their political ideas. I mean, it comes, it's a political era of repression, you know, and it's also a time when the left wing of the labor movement, who really built the CIO in particular in the 30s and early 40s, there's a whole-scale purge of all radicals, you know, whether you're sympathetic to Stalin's Russia if you were in the Communist Party, whether you were a Trotskyist in the Socialist Workers Party, or whether you were an independent socialist, all radicals were literally driven out of the labor movement from 47 through the early 1950s, uh, and um, which has a very long-term impact on uh, not only the political culture of the United States, but also one of the reasons why the American labor movement was, became politically one of the weakest uh, in the world. You know, today. one of the things I really liked about um, about this book was how it can be read. To, to my mind, anyway, I, I also really like fiction. Um, you can read it as a series of mini biographies, mm -hmm. almost. Mm -hmm. You know, there's this cast of characters that just flows through the book, and and you you give their background, where they were born, where they came from, the hardships that they experienced. You know. The, the good guys and the bad guys in the book. Mm -hmm. And um, one of the things I noticed is <clears throat> Mary Adams, Mary Porter Adams, she mm -hmm. was she was the, the owner of the mm -hmm. building mm -hmm. where uh, the Hickman fire was. Um, you know, her her bio was a little uh, short shrifted. Right. Uh, was it because you had a hard time finding mm -hmm material on her and can you talk about how difficult it was to find all those details for the narrative that you had to build for the story well you know the one thing about preserving history is is a very difficult one sometimes you know and we end up relying on pack rats uh and their personal foibles like most of the material that either i i got for the uh large parts of the book or led me to other uh, other material was because Sidney Lenz, who was a, a long-standing socialist and trade union leader, became very prominent uh, anti-war leader during the Vietnam era. Uh, essentially, you know, he donated all of his papers uh, to uh, to the Chicago Historical Society. So that was invaluable. Uh, Leon Dupre, Len Dupre, as his friends call him, was a very prominent civil, you know, began life as a socialist, was for many years, became most prominent as a civil uh, uh, civil liberties attorney, um, donated most of his papers to the Chicago uh, History Society. Um, you know, in fact, when I first looked at Leon Dupre's papers, it said it said it said ACLU. So I opened it up, and it was a bunch of nude photographs. And I'm like, okay, what's this about? And it's because he was involved in all the stuff around censorship in Chicago uh, in the 1950s, in particular. You know, they, there's this old phrase of being banned in Boston. Well, censorship boards existed all over the United States to determine what could be sold or not sold, what books could be sold and not sold, and all sorts of stuff, what films could be seen and not seen. It should be pointed uh, out, though, Band in Boston actually helped move books. <laughs> I mean, it did. If Lady Chatter's a lover, that, that shot right. right through the ceiling. Right. right. I mean, the Ulysses, too. That's like Fire and Fury. Once you say that it's a bad book, you know, 
you know, that's, you know, people are going to, well, I can't read that. Well, I'm going to go read it. Right. I mean, that's what happens. Right. Um, greatest marketing campaign of, of this year. Right. Yeah. It's, 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 it's Tell silly. a kid they can't listen to a record. They're going to buy that. Right. Record. Oh, yeah. You put that right. little sticker on that record. Yeah. I wanted it. That's what I used to look for when they started. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. You know, and so I think the thing that was the most frustrating, and it just partly it reflects record keeping on a local level, is that when I went to try to find the actual transcript of the trial of James Hickman, is that it wasn't there. And the law in Cook County, it still may be the law, but it was at, the, at that time, is that unless a case is appealed, and his wasn't, then there's no obligation of the court to keep the records. So unless the attorneys kept one, and they may have for many years, you know, uh, because I saw quotes that seemed to come from a transcript in older articles. But when they attempted to search for Dupre's records at his old law firm, they couldn't, they couldn't find it. So one of the things I try to encourage people about trying to find things about um, it's important to preserve our own history we can't rely on the state to do that for us I mean if they if they pass some good laws to do that I'm all in favor of it but you have to preserve your own history because you know other people will and they may not write it from the perspective of the people who are involved in it. in fact they may write it in a very a very hostile way in a way that was never intended by the people who were involved in these various uh, various campaigns. The only reason I was able to really flush out the story in a, in a dramatic way is because when I put in a Freedom of Information Act request at the medical examiner's department, the old coroner's department, I was looking mostly for a medical record that just said what the cause of death of the Hickman children uh, was. And um, the woman who was looking through the records called me on my cell phone and, say, and said, do you want the, the transcript of the hearings? And I said, Sure, not knowing at all what that meant. And so that meant that there was a primary source for that. And when I asked her later about where all these transcripts are held, there's a decaying warehouse with lots of decaying boxes somewhere on the west side of Chicago, which tells really, you know, in many ways, uh, what it was like to be working class in Chicago in a, in a situation where, where residential fires were a constant threat to people's lives. Now, I think in some ways, this issue has come back in a real way for people, because you may remember last year in London, there was the Grenfell Towers fire, which was just absolutely horrific, and it was a result completely of government neglect and corruption. Uh, most recently in the Bronx, there's been a series of residential fires, once again, uh, uh, which highlighted the poor conditions of the buildings, particularly in terms of fire safety. So residential fires have come back in a very dramatic way in people's minds. I more had in mind when I started this, when Frank Freed first told me the story, and Frank's biggest claim to fame was he brought the Beatles to Chicago. So if you're of a certain generation, he'll... Oh, I know, yeah. He brought the Beatles to Chicago. Uh, and uh, I was thinking about the issues related to the 2008... Uh, collapse of the housing market and what that meant uh, for for people's lives since housing and the loss of housing and wealth related to housing uh, had completely reshaped working class life, particularly black working class life because black wealth as in terms of home ownership has just evaporated during the last, uh, the last 10 years. So in some ways that was on more in my mind uh, at the time but now with the more recent events, it's, it's back again. And uh, hopefully we won't have 
uh, a horrendous uh, situation like in the Bronx or what happened in, in London. But, you know, given uh, the greed of landlords and the short-sightedness of housing inspectors, you know, can you say it won't happen? I, I, can't, I can't do that. I can't say that. There was a building that blew up in the East Village, too. Yeah, uh, I think one. it was two years ago. Right. We're, we're actually almost out of time. These things oh. fly by. Uh, so I want to get to the questions real quick before we wrap up. I do have a question for Manuel and Aaron. Is that a Zamboni? Are they resurfacing the green zebra <laughs> next door? Ah, oh, yeah. They're clubbing. Okay. Let's They're call it. You know, the co-prosperity sphere we put up with bands all through our shows and stuff mm -hmm. like that. I'm going to call that a Zamboni. <laughs> That's fine. Resurfacing the ice. So, Joe, uh, if you were to write about this period of U.S. history, and this is from somebody that didn't sign their name, so their name is Fred, what are the lessons or key takeaways that you would want readers to learn? Quickly, in about two minutes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, you know, if you were going to look back 20 years from now, right, on uh, American life from, say, the year 2000 to now, right? If you're going to go ahead 20 years and look on, on that era, as I would say that uh, it wouldn't be surprising, I think, to most people that, you know, the thing that really is defining uh, most people's lives is just the growing and massive inequality uh, in American life uh, and the issues that kind of spin from that, which is the increasing militarization of American society, which has its biggest impact on, uh, on African-American life in the, in the inner cities, the issues of gentrification, which are huge issues here in, in, in Pilsen in particular, but in, uh, in, many, in many other areas, the, uh, the simultaneous growth of uh, uh, interest in, in socialism in, a, in the broadest sense of the term among a, a large section of a, of a younger population, but also the growth of you know the far right in, in its fairly traditional old-fashioned Nazi form or its more kind of uh, uh, disguised form of, of the alt-right. Uh, I think those are obviously the issues that um, would come to shape understanding the political actors uh, of our time. And I would also just, just add to it that I think those, those issues haven't been settled, that we're only at the very beginning of either uh, addressing them. And I think new political formations emerging in this country that are trying to provide uh, political solutions to them. And I hope that we're all part of an effort to uh, create a more equitable and decent and democratic society, because there's certainly people who are out there who are not for that. And those are, that's really where I would say what are the issues I would look back on as a historian. So gentlemen, ladies, you've been listening to Joe Allen. He is the author of People Wasn't Made to Burn and Vietnam, The Last War the U.S. Lost. Joe, are you going to hang around in the science of books for people? Sure. They're from Haymarket Press. What, what is your website, Joe? Do you have a website? I just have an author page on Amazon. Okay, well, there we go. That's good enough. Ladies and gentlemen, give it up. Joe Allen. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks so much, guys. is Lumpin Radio's books and literature program airing every Sunday at 11 a.m. Central. This episode featured Joe Allen, an author with several titles on Haymarket Press. This episode was recorded live at Pilsen Community Books on January 18th and first aired on January 28, 2018. I-94 is a Lumpin Radio production with readings by Shanna Van Bolt, show intro and promo voiced by David Green, music by Laurie Johnson and Bill Bennett from the KPM Archive. 
For more information on I-94 and for past episodes, visit EYE94.org. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit LumpenRadio.com. This program was produced and engineered by Jamie Trecker in 2018.